are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. We're going to try to have some question and answer to answer your questions. And I'm going to begin with a lead question uh, that was sent in from Loretta. Loretta asked this question. Mr. Guzik, I have recently been exposed to a teaching that denies original sin and even more so absolutely denies the teaching of imputed sin that came about when the question was asked, are babies born sinners? The belief they tend to hold is that babies are not born sinners, but that they, uh, we, become sinners upon committing our first sin. I've always believed in original sin and that we stand guilty in Adam as we also stand righteous in Jesus when we're born again. If I'm wrong, please clarify this for me. And if I'm correct, then is this teaching heresy? I don't want to be led astray and I certainly don't want to be a part of a ministry that is at the very least teaching things that are unbiblical. Thanks in advance. Well, Loretta, you're asking a very good and a very important question. So um, let me do this. By the way, I'm sorry for the awkward camera work. Uh, I'm holding an iPad, and so it's going to move around a bit, and the frame is going to get a little funny at times. And I hope, hope I can hold it fairly steady through our time. Uh, but Loretta's question about uh, are babies born sinners is a very good and it's a very important question. Um, and I think she's absolutely correct in her prior assumption. In other words, uh, yes, we can say that um, we all sinned in Adam. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, uh, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And very much, though, the sense there is that we all sinned in Adam. In other words, Adam is a very real and a very um, uh, concrete, if you want to use that terminology, representative of the human race. Genetically, spiritually, the entire human race was in Adam when he was first created. And this is even true considering the creation of Eve, because Eve was created out of Adam. So the entire human race being in Adam at creation means that we all sinned in Adam. And his sin in some way is passed down to every human being. And uh, we're given a very concrete example of this in the fact that uh, we all die. As Paul says here in Romans 5.12, um, and death through sin and thus death spread to all men. If someone had no sin whatsoever, they would be um, not subject to death they would be at least in some sense, and I would say it's a limited sense, but in some sense, they would be like Jesus Christ was, who of course was sinless, we understand that. But Jesus also was, uh, no one could take his life from him, he had to lay it down of himself. 
In other words, death had no power over him. Now, this shows us that anybody who is subject to death has sin on their account in some way. And what would we say regarding this a baby? Look, and I'll speak, you know, if I could be so bold in this way, even to speak of babies in the womb, babies in the womb are subject to death as well. They can die. So given all this, uh, I, I think it's important for us to say that death or at least the capability of death is evidence that someone is subject to sin and this subjectiveness to sin was inherited from Adam. Now, it, there's other passages of scripture as well. For example, Psalm 51, verse five, David speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. You see, if a person only becomes a sinner, um, once they sin, then it doesn't make any sense that David would say this. Um, even in iniquity, in sin, in some sense, he was brought forth. And it doesn't mean that uh, there was something sinful in his conception. It simply means that there's something sinful in people as human beings. Um, we are born with the principle of sin. As it's been observed, you don't have to teach your child to sin. They do it just fine. There, there's lots of things like that that you don't have to teach your children. They are born with the capability of doing this. So, um, Loretta, you are correct, and what you're being taught is incorrect at this uh, particular teaching that you've been exposed to. We do have imputed sin, and this is especially true, or if I could say in a theoretical sense, it really in some ways matters very different. In other ways, it matters a lot, of course. But if we define sin in its fullest sense, the Romans 3.23 sense, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, friends, a, a baby falls short of the glory of God. The, the baby misses the mark. You, you could say, and I know we don't like to usually talk or think this way about children, but babies are in fact very selfish. Uh, babies want what they want and they don't care about making the mother miserable. The, the, the child does not say, well, I'm really hungry, but I don't want to inconvenience mom. The child says, I'm hungry and I'm going to scream until I get what I want. So you see this, this just important principle that we, uh, we are born with this sinful nature. Now, it is true that we are born with what we might call an Adamic nature. And it's also true that we are fundamentally sinners. Yet I think it's very interesting to see that when God condemns sinners, we don't see scriptural example, at least that I'm aware of. Friends, if I miss something here, please better inform me. But I don't see in the book of, in the Bible, I should say, I don't see where God condemns sinners for the sin they inherited from Adam. In other words, our imputed or inherited sin is useful for understanding why we're sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. And this again is an inherited condition from Adam. 
So it's helpful for understanding that. But it is significant that when God judges, he judges on the basis of sins performed. For example, Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 says, the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works. That's Revelation chapter 20, verse 13. Notice they weren't judged because they were in Adam. They were judged according to their works. Now, again, I'm not saying it's not true that they, yes, they, they did have imputed sin from Adam, but it doesn't seem to be that that is the basis on which God judges people. Um, th- that's at, at least, at least as, as far as we can see in the scriptures. So there's a very real sense in which we have to re- ask the right question. Um, why are we sinners? Well, we're sinners fundamentally because we were born sinners with a sin nature that's inherited within us, uh, inherited from Adam and Eve. But if we would say, why are people without Christ condemned? We don't see evidence that people are condemned on the basis of their inherited sin nature. Though you could say God would be righteous to do so. But when the scriptures speak about the condemnation of sinners, it speaks about it in terms of the sins that they have committed. Now, I do just want to make one other mention on the question that Loretta made. And again, if you're joining us late, again, I I don't blame it uh, you for wondering what's going on. I'm in an unusual vehicle, I'm on the road. We had a very chaotic beginning. The first 15 or 20 minutes were a complete wash. And this is actually our third take because of some technical difficulties. But we're gonna try to get through this Q&A the best that we can, even with our limited uh, material. Loretta asked the question that she has uh, been um, exposed to a teaching that denies the idea of original sin and absolutely denies the idea of imputed sin. And and my answer simply is, no, there's truth in the idea of imputed sin. We are made sinners because of the work of Adam. Uh, This is clear from Romans chapter five, verse 21, Psalm 51, verse five. But but Jennifer in her question also, excuse me, Loretta, I don't know why I said Jennifer, but Loretta also pointed something out that uh, we stand righteous in Jesus just as we once stood guilty in Adam. Look, I, I would suggest to you that it's only properly fair for us to be made righteous by the work of another man if we have been made sinners by the work of another man. And I believe that the scriptures teach that we have been made sinners by the work of Adam that we inherited. We sinned in Adam as Romans chapter five, verse 12 says. Uh, And of course, then it is completely fair. It's completely righteous of God that we would be made righteous by the work of another man. So again, Loretta, thank you very much for your question. I think that's a great question and happy to answer it, even though we had fits and starts on the beginning of our uh, time here. Uh, Let me just say again, the reason why I'm on the road is because I'm traveling eastward from California to Tennessee. And uh, right now I'm right outside Kingman, Arizona. So I don't know if we have any viewers from uh, Arizona, but if you were to hop in a car and get off the 
eastbound exit right outside of Kingman. Uh, you could drive by and see me in my very same place. Of course, I'm not going to be here all that long. Uh, but yes, greetings to you here. Hey, Loretta, I see on the pop-up here that uh, you saw the question. Yes, thank you very much for your question. Um, we're going to go now to the questions that have come in on the live chat. Uh, I do want to give a special greeting out to my father-in-law, Nils Bergstrom, who's in the hospital um, in Sweden. And um, he's a man who trusts God and loves God very much. And so, uh, Nils, we love you. We're praying for you. Uh, we know that God will have his hand upon you as he has had your li entire life. So praise the Lord. Love you, Nils. And um, so glad that Angelo could go out and have a visit with you there. Uh, okay, let me go to the questions that have come in on the live chat. I'm looking at here. Uh, Anahui, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly there. Anahui, did Job's three friends know that Satan went before God seeking Job's demise? No, there's nothing in the text of the book of Job that tells us that either Job or his friends knew what was going on in the spiritual realm. Um, maybe if Job was the author of the book of Job, which we don't know for sure, but if Job was the author of the book of Job, then maybe that was revealed to him at a later time. But while Job went through his suffering, and certainly in his friends' experiences, um, they did not know. And that was part of their presumption. The friends of Job were good in the sympathy and the comfort that they offered Job. And in general, they had a proper moral perspective. They knew that most of the time, uh, disaster, it, well, I, let me take that back. That often, let's just say that, and let's not use the phrase most of the time. Let's use the phrase often calamity or crisis in a person's life can be connected back to sin. Not, not all the time, of course, and not most of it, but they acted as if it was a absolute principle. And so they believed that Job's calamity came upon him because of some particular sin. And it just wasn't the case. And so they really didn't serve Job uh, or his, um, his need well. But no, they did not know what was happening behind the scenes. Uh, let me go to the next question here from uh, Dovan Kyle. Dovan Kyle says, when the Bible says Adam, was it referring to an individual or the human race as a whole? Well, um, Dovan Kyle, I, I don't know if you, you're probably aware just from the way that you asked the question, you, you probably are aware that uh, the Hebrew word Adam, and again, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but the Hebrew word Adam is both the name of Adam, but it's also the name of mankind. Context usually determines where it's speaking about Adam as an individual or the human race as a whole. Um, when Paul is using the term in Romans, he's definitely speaking of Adam as an individual. And by the way, this is a very important principle, at least as it relates to uh, the New Testament uh, and the Old Testament. As it relates to these things, um, Paul very much believed that Adam was a real person. Uh, there was no symbolic Adam or metaphorical Adam for Paul. 
Adam was a real person. And as far as both Paul and Jesus, more importantly, was concerned, I um, have great concern when anybody denies the validity of a historical Adam. And this is something that's been creeping into uh, otherwise uh, conservative and faithful people who really believe the Bible and believe the Bible as it's written. Uh, more and more accommodation is given to this idea that maybe Adam wasn't an actual person. Maybe it's just a metaphor. Friends, no, this is a very important idea. If Adam was not a real person, then Jesus was wrong. Then the Holy Spirit was wrong who inspired Paul because they present Adam as a uh, real person, as a as an individual. Next question comes from Jennifer. Jennifer asks, in Revelation, John couldn't write what the three thunders, what the seven thunders said. Can you explain? Uh, Jennifer, yes, that's a great question. Again, taken from the book of Revelation. I can't give you the chapter and verse. I mean, we could look it up, but it's really not so important. But there is this place in the revelations that John receives that are made up in the book of Revelation that John um, hears seven thunders and I can't remember if he just simply couldn't write or was commanded not to write it. And look, I think this is one thing that God wants to show, maybe several things, but one thing that God wants to show us through this is the simple principle that um, we're not gonna understand everything prophetically. Friends, I believe in Bible prophecy. The Bible does have a lot of um, content in it that speaks of the future, Uh, that speaks of what's going to happen in the future. So uh, listen, the the Bible is a prophetic book. It has a lot of predictive prophecy in it, but we we need to be humble in our understanding of prophecy. And I think that's part of what God was communicating when he very much told John, okay, you see this here, but don't write it. Um, There's going to be some things that are just left unexplained in prophecy and we really won't know them until they happen, so to speak. So uh, yes, thank you for that question, Jennifer. It, it, maybe there's more significance to it than that, but I, I think at the very least it has that significance to keep us humble about our understanding of prophecy. Uh, Char asked the question, was Manasseh with Ephraim considered a half tribe because each of the half tribe of Joseph or because some of the tribe decided to live east of the Jordan River and some on the west. Char, well, really, it's the latter thing that you explain. Uh, we talk about the tribe of, uh, what is it? Um, Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh. I'm trying to think of the tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan. But half the tribe of Manasseh decided to settle on the eastern side of the Jordan River in what is today the modern day kingdom of Jordan, the other half settled on the Western side of the Jordan River. We call Manasseh the half tribe, not because the whole tribe, there there were two halves that made up the whole. Um, Ephraim is never called a half tribe. Ephraim is always understood to be a tribe just as it is. So, Ephraim and Manasseh were counted as whole tribes, but just in the land allotment coming into the promised land, half of the tribe of Manasseh was on the east side of the Jordan River, half the, the other half 
of the tribe of Manasseh was on the western side of the uh, River Jordan. So again, Char, I hope that explains it for you here. Next question from Jesse asks, can demons physically hurt humans? Well, um, Jesse, yes. Yes, they can. Okay, you you know, look, Jesse, I'm thinking through the answer. And and the first thing I think of is uh, I want to grade it through the biblical lens. Look, there's stories of people being demon possessed and being, you know, uh, greatly harmed by demonic spirits that possess them. But to me, though, that experience, uh, record of people experiences is meaningful. Uh, It's not ultimately determinative. So I go back to the scriptures. And when you think of the man mentioned in the three synoptic gospels, whom we know as the Gadarene demoniac, the man who was chained in the tombs of uh, Gadara, that man, it says that he used to harm himself. And so that was physical harm that was occasioned by demon possession. Um, And let me say as well, um, Jesse, there are just some strange things that seem to happen in the spiritual realm. I, I decided a long time ago that Uh, I don't really need to have an explanation for every strange spiritual experience. There are going to be some spiritual experiences, things that happen. And about all you can say is, wow, that's strange. Wow, that, you know, was really out of the ordinary. And that's okay. Uh, But at least just on the biblical basis of the record concerning the gathering demoniac, we would say that, yes, it is possible for uh, demons to physically hurt human beings. All right, Anahui, uh, Anahui asks the question, a follow-up question. In Job's day, was it not known that Satan goes before the throne of God seeking our souls? Um, uh, Anahui, I, we have no way to answer that. Um, maybe people knew that sometimes that happens, that Satan can have audience with God, so to speak, and talk about, you know, what's happening on the earth. Um, maybe that was known among people. Maybe it was, or maybe it wasn't. But in the book of Job, we have no way to know, we, we have no indication that that's what Job knew or thought of his particular situation. So I would expect that they did not have a very, sophisticated understanding of uh, the realm of the spirit in those early days of God's revelation. I I always remember this verse. I come back to this verse again and again when it comes to understanding uh, the Old Testament and what they understood about the spiritual realm. Uh, First Timothy, I believe it's 111 life and immortality came to light through Jesus Christ. In other words, there's so much more that we understand about life and immortality, the spiritual realm, if you will, in light of Jesus Christ. So uh, that's, we really have no way to know that. And then uh, Christopher asked this question, 
What happens to someone who doesn't know God then suddenly hears the word of God like a Bible verse? Well, Christopher, that could just simply be the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, the, The Holy Spirit can communicate truth to people. And sometimes people who don't know that they're seeking God yet. Think of what the Holy Spirit did to Saul of Tarsus, whom we later know as the Apostle Paul, what he did when Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus. Saul wasn't seeking God at all. He was persecuting God. And yet God spoke to him and said, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God in the person of Jesus Christ. So um, yes, the Holy Spirit can reveal himself and we long for the spirit of God to reveal himself to people. Again, folks, if you're halfway through, I apologize for the shaky picture. I'm actually holding my iPad with my hand. And so I can't hold it as steady as I would like uh, because I'm on the road and we had some technical difficulty and we weren't able to do this live stream from my phone, which I have a mount for. So I had to switch to my iPad, which I have no mount for. And so I'm holding it and it's a little bit shaky there. Uh, we'll continue on with questions. A question that comes from Kehech. I hope I'm saying that right. In James chapter three, verse 17, it says, uh, but the wisdom from above is good fruits. And then it says, are the good fruits, the fruits mentioned in Galatians chapter five, verses 22 and 23. Um, I'll read to you James three seventeen. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. And then of course, Galatians chapter five mentions the fruit of the spirit. You know, it's kind of interesting because I don't know, Kehek, that James had the fruit of the spirit in mind when he wrote that. But I think the Holy Spirit had the fruit of the Spirit in mind. You know, we believe that God, of course, used human authors and used the intelligence and the personality and the thought processes of those human authors in bringing forth the scripture. But we also believe that the Holy Spirit was operating on a level that goes beyond what people can understand. Uh, what the writers themselves understood is what I mean to say. And so I can't tell you whether or not James was trying to make the connection with the fruit of the spirit that were later mentioned because James, by all indication, James was one of the first books of the New Testament written and written before Galatians, which by the way, was one of Paul's earliest letters. But probably James was written before Galatians. So James wasn't anticipating that Nevertheless, um, I think the Holy Spirit is making that connection. And I I think it's valid to connect those things. Let me go on to the next question from Jeanette, who asks, uh, do you have any tips on reading through the difficult chapters of the Bible? Building instructions, genealogies, number counts. Um, Wonderful. Sorry, just got a text from my wife. That's wonderful. She made it there to her mom's in Sweden. Praise the Lord. Okay, so Jeanette, the advice I would give for reading some of these more difficult chapters of the Bible is um, if you have time, go deep. Make a deep study of them. 
you know, go to a commentary. Go to the Enduring Word Bible commentary. EnduringWord.com, or you can find it on the Blue Letter Bible, blb.org. Look for David Guzik or the Enduring Word Bible comment. Just search for it online. You can go deep or you can just go and try to get just a big principle. And the big principle might be, you know, God is a God of order. Um, God moves through real people if you're going through genealogies. In other words, unless you're really going to take the time to dig deep, which there's value in doing, Don't try to find some deep spiritual meaning in every other word. Just look for the big picture and draw an application from that. Um, So building instructions, like building the tabernacle, you see from that God is a God of order and organization. That's a great thing for us to know and for us to recognize and for us to hang on to. The genealogies, we can remind ourselves, these things are recorded and happen to real flesh and blood people, not, you know, make-believe. This isn't fairy tale. These aren't stories. So um, either determine that you're going to dig deep or you're just going to draw a general principle from the expanded passage. Don't get into the trap of feeling that you have to find a deep meaning out of every other verse. Sometimes the Bible communicates its important meaning to us in broad strokes, um, and it's okay to approach it that way. Hope that's helpful for you there, Tony. Uh, Balboa asks a question. Um, Oh, excuse me. Let me get to Tony's question. I'm sorry first. Tony asks a question. Within the second commandment, what qualifies as a graven image? Um, I know we're not to bow down to them, but we're also not to make them. Uh, just wanting to be careful in reference to art. Tony, I have to tell you that this is a question that Christians have answered quite differently throughout church history. There are Christians, uh, there are people, Jews, Christians, whatever, who to this day will not make a representation of Jesus Christ. Because of course, Jesus is God, And they say it would be a violation of this command to not make a graven image of God. Now, technically speaking, a graven image is something that is carved. It's engraved. But this principle is rightly applied to other arts as well. And I think what it is, is that we should, okay, I'm thinking through all this in my mind to to try to give you the best answer. Here's the issue on which it turns, Tony. Some people have interpreted this command as being two commands. The first command is don't make a graven image. The second command is uh, don't bow down to a graven image. There are other people, and I would be more in the second camp, that the idea is don't make an image that uh, people will bow down for the purpose of people bowing down to. Do do you see the distinction there? One would say no image of God whatsoever and don't worship any image. The other one would says don't make an image for the purpose or that is likely to end up being an object of of worship. Tony, I have to say that that's kind of the the occasion that, that I would have on it that really uh, that's essentially one command. So 
in reference to art that we would make today, I think we have a responsibility to make art that doesn't intend to be prayed towards, worshipped, regarded as a true or real representation of the living God. Any artwork we do of deity in any way, including that of Jesus, should be done in a way that acknowledges that we're really just talking about impressions here, impressions. So, uh, Tony, that, that's what I do. And again, just go back to the idea that um, you kind of have to decide, is this two commands or one command? If it is two commands, then God's saying, make no representation of him at all. If it's two commands, then it's no, make no representation with the purpose or with the likelihood of being bowed down to. All right, let me continue on. Balboa asks, were there any true believers before the Reformation? Balboa, I can answer that question very simply. Yes, of course. Well, now look, obviously we believe there were true believers in the times of Jesus and the disciples, and that's obviously before the Reformation. But God has always had his remnant, always. Even in times when the church and the institutions of Christianity have become very corrupt and very... Uh, more active in turning people away from God than towards God. Even in the midst of those terrible times, God has always had his remnant. And so, um, yes, there have been times when the institutional church has been more godly or less godly, more wicked or less wicked. But God has always had his people, always had his remnant in the earth. So that's something that we can count on. So yes, absolutely positively Balboa. Um, there were many true believers before the Reformation. All right, let me continue on here. A question from Gabby. Can you explain the act of repentance towards others? Will God forgive pastors who abuse and never repent to their victims, only God? Well, Gabby, it, it's a good question, but really it's a question just held in the broader perspective. Um, the broader perspective, because you, you give it in reference to pastors who abuse and don't repent to their victims. Um, but it could be true of any sin that somebody commits. To, the, the principle would be the same, is what I'm just trying to say. And that repentance is the mark of a godly man or woman. Um, yet, we're all on the process for being sanctified. In other words, I would say that if somebody greatly harmed somebody else and did not repent of it, it would not necessarily mean that they weren't saved. It would mean that they weren't right with God at that particular point. And it would mean that there were definitely, you know, things for them to do. There's great work for them to do. But it does not mean that uh, they're not going to heaven, that their own sins won't be forgiven. Every one of us is a combination of saint and sinner. Um, I'm, I'm speaking of those who are God's children born again. We are a combination of saint and sinner. We, we are justified while at the same time sinners. And that should never ever be used as a justification for not caring about the sins we commit 
and not being committed to set things right. Uh, but we, we don't earn our salvation through our repentance. Now, a humble, repentant heart is a definite indication of a godly man or woman. And so we would just say that there's some serious sanctification that needs to be done. Um, but really, th- this is a, a question that goes in the bigger sense of, um, of uh, forgiveness and repentance in general. So let me go to the next one from uh, Tunnel Banan. Are aliens real space creatures or just demons who trick people? Well, um, Subway, because that's what your name means, of course, in Swedish. Uh, we, we don't, the, okay, let's just admit, first of all, the Bible does not speak to this. So I, I can give you my best guess, but I, I can't give you a Bible answer to this question. And if I were to give you my best guess, I would say I would be, I would be more inclined to believe that they're demonic deceptions, but I can't exclude the possibility of life on other planets. But to me, demonic deception seems a more plausible explanation of what's happening there with, um, uh, alien encounters, you know, claimed alien encounters. Let's just leave it with that. That, that would be the way that I would describe it. So um, let me see. Okay, here's a question from Ordon. Uh, Ordon asks, hello, how do you believe Christians should live as free people, but not with a cover of vice? Well, Ordon, we need to live our life before God with a sense of freedom. We're not bound by the fear of man. We're not bound by the, the, um, the tyranny of, of death and bondage to sin. We are free men and women in Jesus Christ. Yet the freedom that we have in Christ does not give us any excuse to sin. We should do the very best we can to live godly and God-honoring and to use our freedom with a godly um, purpose. It's like Jesus Christ has set you free, therefore use that freedom in a good and godly way. That's the way that I would describe that particular um, verse. So Christians are free in Christ, but again, we use that freedom in a way that brings God glory. Well, that was the last question for today. And again, I want to apologize for our shortened version of today's Q question and answer. Um, we'll clean up things the best we can uh, in uh, post-production for this YouTube video. But hey, I'm glad that we could have the time here. I'm glad we could deal with the lead question today. The lead question today, uh, are babies born sinners or not? And then uh, the different questions that all of you, our great audience has brought in before us. So thank you so much for the time that you've given us together here, our whole YouTube family. And next week, according to plan, uh, I'll be uh, back in my home in California. But hey, God willing, and if we live, we don't know what's gonna happen. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. God bless you. Thank you for your prayers, for enduring word and our ongoing work. Uh, we're so grateful for you all and especially the way that you pray for the work that God is doing. 
God bless you and God willing. And if we live, see you next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.